All right, here is Joe Biden. He has finally stepped to the podium the giving a speech on Afghanistan. Place in the last week, and the steps we're taking to address the rapidly evolving events. My national security team and I have been closely monitoring the situation on the ground in Afghanistan and moving quickly to execute the plans we had put in place to respond to every constituency, including and contingency, including the rapid collapse we're seeing now. I'll speak more in a moment about the specific steps we're taking, but I want to remind everyone how we got here and what America's interests are in Afghanistan. We went to Afghanistan almost 20 years ago with clear goals. Get those who attacked us on September 11, 2001, and make sure al-Qaeda could not use Afghanistan as a base from which to attack us again. We did that. We severely degraded al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. We never gave up the hunt for Osama bin Laden, and we got him. That was a decade ago. Our mission in Afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation-building. It was never supposed to be creating a unified, centralized democracy. Our only vital national interest in Afghanistan remains today what it has always been, preventing a terrorist attack on America's homeland. I've argued for many years that our mission should be narrowly focused on counterterrorism, not counterinsurgency or nation-building. That's why I opposed the surge when it was proposed in 2009 when I was vice president. And that's why, as president, I'm adamant we focus on the threats we face today in 2021, not yesterday's threats. Today, the terrorist threat has metastasized well beyond Afghanistan. Al-Shabaab in Somalia, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Nusra in Syria, ISIS attempting to create a caliphate in Syria and Iraq and establishing affiliates in multiple countries in Africa and Asia. These threats warrant our attention and our resources. We conduct effective counterterrorism missions against terrorist groups in multiple countries where we don't have permanent military presence. If necessary, we'll do the same in Afghanistan. We've developed counterterrorism over the horizon capability that will allow us to keep our eyes firmly fixed on the direct threats to the United States in the region and act quickly and decisively if needed. When I came into office, I inherited a deal that President Trump negotiated with the Taliban. Under his agreement, U.S. forces would be out of Afghanistan by May 1, 2021 just a little over three months after I took office. U.S. forces had already drawn down during the Trump administration from roughly 15,500 American forces to 2,500 troops in country. And the Taliban was at its strongest militarily since 2001. The choice I had to make as your president was either to follow through on that agreement or be prepared to go back to fighting the Taliban in the middle of the spring fighting season. There would have been no ceasefire after May 1. There was no agreement protecting our forces after May 1. There was no status quo of stability without American casualties after May 1. There was only 
a cold reality of either following through on the agreement to withdraw our forces or escalating the conflict and sending thousands more American troops back into combat in Afghanistan, lurching into the third decade of conflict. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. That's why we're still there. We were clear-eyed about the risks. We planned for every contingency. But I always promised the American people that I would be straight with you. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. We spent over a trillion dollars. We trained and equipped an Afghan military force of some 300,000 strong, incredibly well-equipped, a force larger in size than the militaries of many of our NATO allies. We gave them every tool they could need. We paid their salaries, provided for the maintenance of their Air Force, something the Taliban doesn't have. Taliban does not have an Air Force. We provided close air support. We gave them every chance to determine their own future. We could not provide them was the will to fight for that future. There's some very brave and capable Afghan special forces units and soldiers. But if Afghanistan is unable to mount any real resistance to the Taliban now, there is no chance that one year, one more year, five more years, or 20 more years, the U.S. military boots in the ground would have made any difference. Here's what I believe to my core. It is wrong to order American troops to step up when Afghanistan's own armed forces would not. The political leaders of Afghanistan were unable to come together for the good of their people, unable to negotiate for the future of their country when the chips were down. They would never have done so while U.S. troops remained in Afghanistan, bearing the brunt of the fighting for them. And our true strategic competitors, China and Russia, would love nothing more than the United States to continue to funnel billions of dollars in resources and attention into stabilizing Afghanistan indefinitely. When I hosted President Ghani and Chairman Abdullah at the White House in June, and again when I spoke by phone to Ghani in July, we had very frank conversations. We talked about how Afghanistan should prepare to fight their civil wars after the U.S. military departed to clean up the corruption in government so the government could function for the Afghan people, 
We talked extensively about the need for Afghan leaders to unite politically. They fail to do any of that. I also urge them to engage in diplomacy, to seek a political settlement with the Taliban. This advice was flatly refused. Mr. Ghani insisted that the Afghan forces would fight, but obviously he was wrong. So I'm left again to ask of those who argue that we should stay. How many more generations of America's daughters and sons would you have me send to fight Afghanistan's civil war when Afghan troops will not? How many more lives, American lives, is it worth? How many endless rows of headstones at Arlington National Cemetery? I'm clear on my answer. I will not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. Mistake of staying and fighting indefinitely in a conflict that is not in the national interest of the United States, of doubling down on a civil war in a foreign country, of attempting to remake a country through the endless military deployments of U.S. forces. Those are the mistakes we cannot continue to repeat because we have significant vital interest in the world that we cannot afford to ignore. I also want to acknowledge how painful this is to so many of us. The scenes we're seeing in Afghanistan, they're gut-wrenching, particularly for our veterans, our diplomats, humanitarian workers, for anyone who has spent time on the ground working to support the Afghan people for those who have lost loved ones in Afghanistan, and for Americans who have fought and served in the country, serve our country in Afghanistan. This is deeply, deeply personal. It is for me as well. I've worked on these issues as long as anyone. I've been throughout Afghanistan during this war, while the war was going on, from Kabul to Kandahar to the Kunar Valley. I've traveled there on four different occasions. I met with the people. I've spoken to the leaders. I spent time with our troops. And I came to understand firsthand what was and was not possible in Afghanistan. So now we're focused on what is possible. We will continue to support the Afghan people. We will lead with our diplomacy, our international influence, and our humanitarian aid. We'll continue to push for regional diplomacy and engagement to prevent violence and instability. We'll continue to speak out for the basic rights of the Afghan people, of women and girls, just as we speak out all over the world. I've been clear the human rights must be the center of our foreign policy, not the periphery. But the way to do it is not through endless military deployments. It's with our diplomacy, our economic tools, and rallying the world to join us. Now, let me lay out the current mission in Afghanistan. I was asked to authorize, and I did, 6,000 U.S. troops to deploy to Afghanistan for the purpose of assisting in the departure of U.S. and allied civilian personnel from Afghanistan and to evacuate our Afghan allies and vulnerable Afghans to safety outside of Afghanistan. Our troops are working to secure the airfield, 
and ensure continued operation of both the civilian and military flights. We're taking over air traffic control. We have safely shut down our embassy and transferred our diplomats. Our, di our diplomatic presence is now consolidated at the airport as well. Over the coming days, we intend to transport out thousands of American citizens who have been living and working in Afghanistan. We'll also continue to support the safe departure of civilian personnel, the civilian personnel of our allies who are still serving in Afghanistan. Operation Allies Refugee, which I announced back in July, has already moved 2,000 Afghans who are eligible for special immigration visas and their families to the United States. In the coming days, the U.S. military will provide assistance to move, to move more SIV-eligible Afghans and their families out of Afghanistan. We're also expanding refugee access to cover other vulnerable Afghans who worked for our embassy. U.S. non-governmental agencies or uh, U.S. non-governmental organizations and Afghans who otherwise are at great risk in U.S. news agencies. I know there are concerns about why we did not begin evacuating Afghans civilians sooner. Part of the answer is some of the Afghans did not want to leave earlier, still hopeful for their country. And part of it was because the Afghan government and its supporters discouraged us from organizing a mass exodus to avoid triggering, as they said, a crisis of confidence. American troops are performing this mission as professionally and as effectively as they always do, but it is not without risks. As we carry out this departure, we have made it clear to the Taliban, if they attack our personnel or disrupt our operation, the U.S. presence will be swift and the response will be swift and forceful. We will defend our people with devastating force if necessary. Our current military mission will be short in time, limited in scope, and focused in its objectives. Get our people and our allies as safely as quickly as possible. And once we have completed this mission, we will conclude our military withdrawal. We will end America's longest war after 20 long years of bloodshed. The events we're seeing now are sadly proof that no amount of military force would ever deliver a stable, united, secure Afghanistan, as known in history as the graveyard of empires. What's happening now could just as easily happen five years ago or 15 years in the future. You have to be honest. Our mission in Afghanistan has taken many missteps, made many missteps over the past two decades. I'm now the fourth American president to preside over war in Afghanistan, two Democrats and two Republicans. I will not pass this responsibly on, responsibility on to a fifth president. I will not mislead the American people by claiming that just a little more time in Afghanistan will make all the difference nor will I shrink from my share of responsibility for where we are today and how we must move forward from here. I am President of the United States of America, 
and the buck stops with me. I'm deeply saddened by the facts we now face. But I do not regret my decision to end America's war fighting in Afghanistan and maintain a laser focus on our counterterrorism missions there and other parts of the world. Our mission to degrade the terrorist threat of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and kill Osama bin Laden was a success. Our decades-long effort to overcome centuries of history and permanently change and remake Afghanistan was not, and I wrote and believed it never could be. I cannot and will not ask our troops to fight on endlessly in another, in another country's civil war, taking casualties, suffering life-shattering injuries, leaving families broken by grief and loss. This is not in our national security interest. It is not what the American people want. It is not what our troops, who have sacrificed so much over the past two decades, deserve. I made a commitment to the American people when I ran for president that I would bring America's military involvement in Afghanistan to an end. While it's been hard and messy, and yes, far from perfect, I've honored that commitment. More importantly, I made a commitment to the brave men and women who serve this nation that I wasn't going to ask them to continue to risk their lives in a military action that should have ended long ago. Our leaders did that in Vietnam when I got here as a young man. I will not do it in Afghanistan. I know my decision will be criticized, but I would rather take all that criticism than pass this decision on to another President of the United States, yet another one, a fifth one. Because it's the right one, it's the right decision for our people. The right one for our brave service members who risk their lives serving our nation. And it's the right one for America. Thank you. May God protect our troops, our diplomats, and all brave Americans serving in harm's way. Well, God's going to have to protect them because you've told them to go hide because you won't send anybody to get them out. His speech could be summarized really in, in two words, straw man fallacy. Nobody is upset that he's leaving Afghanistan. As I was critical of the fighting season deadline under the Trump administration deal, I am critical of this deadline too. He brought up the fighting season. You know, the fighting season doesn't end until after October. So why leave in the middle of the fighting season? where you're pulling the rug out from everybody and you're not doing a slow drawdown. Why, why do that? Why shut down Kabul and leave only, not Kabul, excuse me, why, why shut down the military base and then just leave Kabul open? So you only have that one runway to deal with. Why do that? Again, it's, it's a straw man fallacy. People aren't upset about leaving Afghanistan. People aren't, uh, aren't trying to say, just... Just hang on for a little bit longer. I don't know anybody who said that. I've told you before, it's a generational thing. The people who are in Afghanistan now have to develop a culture of, one, warriors, two, of national identity. They don't have that. That cannot happen in one generation, and I don't know a single person who has said that. Not a single person who has said that. He's the only one that's ever said that, that I've ever heard. 
Just a little more time in Afghanistan. I don't know anybody who said that. The issue isn't even staying there. The issue is how it happened. You didn't get our people out first. You didn't get all of our equipment out first. You, you left a lot of it behind to be taken by, by the enemy. You did it in the dead of night. We went to bed one day. We woke up, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, okay. Military bases are closed down, and people are leaving. Oh, that's interesting. You know, there was a line in there. There was a line in there that I found very profound, and I don't know how many people picked up on it. I was asked to send 6,000 troops to help with what's happening over there now, which means he didn't even consider doing it until somebody brought it up to him. Now imagine you're the commander-in-chief, allegedly. You're sitting here watching what's happening. You're getting the intelligence briefings. You're watching what's happening in the country on the news. And you don't look over at somebody and go, yo, do I need to get more people over there? This looks get, looks like it's getting ugly. At, at what point does the commander-in-chief say, hey, why aren't all of the Americans in that country out of the country yet? Why do we not have enough assets there to protect them? You realize the Taliban today in Kabul are going door-to-door. They're not just taking people's guns away. They're going door-to-door, and they're looking for sympathizers, people who worked with us, to kill them. Prepare yourself. You're going to see a bunch of executions in the coming weeks. It's going to be all over. You're going to bring back all those memories of Daniel Pearl and others. It's not that you left. It's not even fully the timeline. It's how you did it in the dead of night with no warning. He can say that he talked to the president of Afghanistan and he said, yeah, we'll fight, we'll fight, whatever. Okay, everybody knew that that wasn't going to happen. Everybody. And anybody who is a casual observer of combat in Afghanistan knows full well the Afghan military couldn't do that. He did acknowledge Afghan has some decent special forces units. They do. There aren't that many of them. They can't fight this entire conflict. Maybe they'll start their own insurgency and and Afghanistan will have have to deal with an insurgency like Iraq did, but it'll be the good guys as the insurgents this time. I don't know. Everything he said in that speech was a flipping lie. Everything was everything was a lie. He kept talking about May, as I pointed out earlier. There was a conditional agreement. The Taliban had to meet certain conditions for the U.S. withdrawal in May to happen. And I was critical of the May withdrawal date back when it was signed. Something else that he said, there's... There was no protection for our troops after May. As if somehow what he's doing now in August changes that? I got news for you. Before that deal for the withdrawal in May was signed, American troops weren't dying in Afghanistan. You know, it's been nearly two years. It's been over 18 months since there's been a casualty there. Our troops are doing just fine. And he wasn't faced with two decisions. This is another lie. He wasn't faced with going back and scaling up for a full war again. No. Or getting out. No, you, you could have kept the force that was already there. Maybe maybe even downsized just a little bit. Maybe increased just a little bit. That force was plenty capable of beating back any major Taliban advance. But you chose not even to maintain that. And like I said, if you don't want to spend the money and stay in the country forever, I'm with you on that. I really am. 
The issue is you didn't have the Americans out. Everybody's known once we left, Afghanistan was probably going to fall apart. Everybody knew that. The only way to prevent that from happening was to be there generationally. And there had to be a conversation about whether or not we wanted to, to put in the expense to do that. I think it's a fair conversation to have. I think you'd find that most Americans would be like, not worth it. Okay. But don't pretend that there's anybody out there going, if you just give us five more years, I mean, everything will be fine. No. There isn't a single person out there who believes that. Nobody. He's the first person I've ever heard say that. The reality is, you didn't get Americans out. You left them there. And you pulled all of our assets out. You shut down a military installation that could have protected that entire region. You let the Taliban take the equipment that, that was at that base. And, and, st- and I know sometimes we leave stuff behind. Logistically, it's just something that we do. Would have made a whole lot more sense to go ahead and move that elsewhere. But I digress. It's the way you did it. It's not that it happened. And the way you did it was an unmitigated disaster. It is undeniable. More coming up. 95.3 MNC. And good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. want to thank R&B Car Company, locations in South Bend and Warsaw. R&B Car Company are your used car experts. All right. Well, there's a memo going around from Pelosi. I don't know how many of you have seen this. The memo is basically the Democrats trying to do damage control. And... It's not making people happy, to say the least. This is in a memo that Speaker Pelosi sent out as, again, Democrats are basically just doing damage control. Biden was not willing to enter a third decade of conflict and surge in thousands of more troops to fight in a civil war that Afghanistan wouldn't fight for themselves, which you just heard Biden say that same thing. Now, for the record, okay, 
Nobody is even debating that. Honestly, nobody is debating that. The issue is in the way in which the withdrawal happened. It's clear from the past few weeks that would have been necessary more troops for an indefinite amount of time. And again, if you're going to stay in Afghanistan, you're, you're going to have a presence there forever. Um, I got news for you. We have a presence forever in many countries. And we do that to prevent them from being taken over, overrun, what have you, uh, because they're our allies and they are of strategic interest. Now, I would easily forgive somebody for saying, well, South Korea is a little different than Afghanistan because Afghanistan, they kind of they kind of don't like us. Well, that's a fair point. Whereas if you go to South Korea as a member of the U.S. military, uh, they love you. You go to Italy as a member of the U.S. military, they love you. You go to Germany, you're fairly popular too. So yeah, there is a difference. Now, I, I was listening to Kill Me today. By the way, Kill Me did great coverage today. He really did. Brian Kilmeade's show today was amazing. It's a rare instance for me to drive around and be able to actually listen to the radio station. And, and Brian Kilmeade had a very good show today. I disagree with some of what he said, but I understand the logic and why he was saying it. You know, it, it, by the way, General Petraeus, he has been on fire all over today. If you're going to listen to anybody about Afghanistan, listen to Petraeus. But, you know, again, this this notion that, hey, if we're going to have intelligence assets, you know, it needs to be in Afghanistan or something like that. You don't need to be in Afghanistan for that. Is it helpful to be? Probably. But do you need to be there? No. No, you don't need to. Uh, there's some people who mistakenly think that we need to be in Afghanistan to have a presence in that region and for the intelligence gathering and that sort of thing. That's not necessarily true. I understand why people like Kilmeade might think that, but it's it's not 100% true. But if you're going to stay in Afghanistan, it is a generational thing. You're going to establish a permanent presence there. It will be on the rotation of deployments like Germany and Italy and South Korea and everywhere else. All right. The real question is, do we want to do that? There is great debate on both sides. And there's been way too much money spent on that. It is too corrupt of a country uh, to be just sinking money into it. I think that's a fair assessment. But at the same time, that's really not what people are upset about. There are some people that are making the case, we should have been there long term. All right. But that's really not why people are angry. That's really not the issue of what has been happening today and over the past week in Afghanistan. The issue is the way in which the withdrawal was carried out. This is also in Pelosi's memo. The administration knew that there was a distinct possibility that Kabul would fall to the Taliban. It was not an inevitability. It was a possibility. This is in Pelosi's memo, directly contradicting Biden's previous assessment from July 8th, which, again, the only person, <laughs> the only person who's really, really saying that uh, was Joe Biden. You know, if the Taliban rose up, if they rose up, they are capable of defeating, or it's not Taliban, but if the Afghan military rose up, they are capable of defeating the Taliban. But they don't have a warrior culture there. It is a tribalist country. Getting them to fight under a unified banner is not something that is going to happen until you have generational change there. It takes time for that to happen. POTUS said in July that the Afghan military had the capability to fight the Taliban, but they had to demonstrate the will. Sadly, that will that did not materialize. 
This is all in Pelosi's memo. The administration planned for every possibility. Did they? Really? Did they plan for every possibility, Pelosi? Is that why we, we closed down a military installation that could have prevented the uh, the rapid advance of the Taliban? Is is that why we closed that down and, and left Americans stranded in the country and have issued orders now? If you can't get to us safely, hide. Good luck. Get out of the country. Maybe you go to Pakistan or something where they're, you know, pro-America and stuff. Good Lord. The administration planned for every possibility. No, they didn't. We had contingency plans in place for any eventuality. No, you didn't, including a quick fall of Kabul. Look at television right now. Look at television. Pelosi's lying through her teeth, too. You didn't have any contingency plans. See, here's the thing. The Democrats are trying to tell you, uh, look, Biden didn't want to carry this this war over, um, but he certainly knew that Kabul could fall, and and he's not being honest there. Um, but we had contingency plans in place. Okay, what good are those contingency plans if they all fail? And let's be honest, there were no plans, which is why we're seeing in Afghanistan this past weekend what is happening. That's why we had troops pre-positioned in the region to deploy as they have done. We always have those troops there. That's not a contingency plan. That's They've always been there. We are focused on safely evacuating U.S. Embassy personnel. No, you're not. You told them to go hide. American citizens, SIV applicants, and their families, which is my one of my biggest complaints about Trump was he didn't do enough to help help the, the Afghans who helped us get out. That is one of my biggest complaints, and I have raged about that many times, and I will continue to do so. We have deployed 6,000 U.S. military to Afghanistan to secure the airport and ensure that those evacuation flights as well as commercial and charter flights can safely depart. Yeah, but in the president's speech, I was asked to do this, so he didn't even think about it. As I said, just imagine you're the commander-in-chief. You're sitting at Camp David. You're you're upset that your your wife hurt her ankle. You're on vacation while while Afghanistan falls apart, and you'd... You don't look around and ask anybody, hey, are our people okay? Do we have enough people on the ground? Is you know, Do we need to send more? And you're not doing that actively, and somebody has to come to you and go, um, hey, uh, Joe, we, we, need, we need more people. This is getting bad. That's pathetic. But indefinite war was and is unacceptable to the president. Okay, well, it was to Trump, too. I mean, again, it's, it's, that's not the issue. The issue is how this happened. They go in to talk about the SIV applicants and... Um, that this was an intelligence failure. But in the memo, they basically blame the Afghans who were trying to get out of the country for not doing it fast enough. You know, this is another thing that's getting left out of the news reports here, and it's also very frustrating. You know, a lot of these folks have had their applications in for a very long period of time, and their paperwork has not been processed. Boy, that sounds familiar. That sounds exactly like our country to not process paperwork for people who legitimately need to get out of their country and come to the United States. You know, they would have been better off just taking a flight to Mexico and walking across the southern border. To be point blank frank with you. These are people who are going to be executed because they helped us. And they helped us because they knew we were the good guys. And they believed that there was a better future for their country. And now that that is not happening, they need to get out, but they have processed this paperwork. They just didn't have their paperwork processed. They filed their paperwork. We didn't process it. You know, there's a huge paperwork error, and we do this all the time. 
when it comes to immigration, don't we? Well, excuse me for thinking that people who helped us in a military conflict deserve to get a little bump in in uh, in the line. This is, they go on to do some other stuff in this memo. This this memo is ticking a lot of people off. But basically, it's Democrats doing damage control, and it's it's pathetic. I, I don't I don't know what else to say about it. It's pathetic. His speech was a bunch of lies and straw man fallacy. That's what it was. All right. What is not a lie, though, is the great treatment that I got at R&B Car Company when I bought a car over my vacation. Uh, I told you, I don't know, I think a few weeks before I went on vacation here uh, last week that my wife came to me and my wife said, hey, I think it's time that we start having a discussion about me, meaning her, getting a new car. Uh, the van that we had was getting up in miles. It was starting to become uh, a maintenance issue and that sort of thing. And she was also starting to drive a lot more, and she was concerned about getting stranded somewhere. So um, we had that discussion. We started poking around, and I had a previous good experience with R&B Car Company. I didn't buy from them because they didn't have what I was looking for at that time, but it was a great experience, and I know a lot of the people over there. Uh, so I said, well, let's take a look at RB. So we did. We went out there, and she looked at several cars, did a bunch of test driving, which naturally took entirely too long. But um, luckily, she did find a vehicle that she liked. So what she ended up doing is she got a late model car that's still under factory warranty because it only had 15,000 miles on it. And it got us the payment, exactly what we are looking to pay, and it all happened at R&B Car Company in South Bend. And it was a great experience, no pressure, um, you know, we basically went over the budget for the total cost of the car, the budget monthly, what we're looking at, terms and, and that sort of thing. And they were able to get us options that worked for us. And there were some other vehicles we were looking at that wouldn't have worked for us. And they didn't waste our time. This is something that sticks in my craw. When you have a very specific budget and you go into a dealership and you tell them that and then they try and sell you something that you don't have a budget for, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, you, we can make this work. They didn't do that, R&B Car Company. I really hate that because then your car broke and everything else. R&B Car Company only showed us things that were going to work for our budget, work for our needs, and that is exactly what we got. And she absolutely loves her car. So she's been driving around, and we, we actually drove it on vacation uh, up into Merrillville, and it has been a fantastic vehicle for her, and it still even has a factory warranty on it. Go to R&B Car Company. Their website is rbcarcompany.com. You can take a look at their inventory right there. And they are really on the hunt for new inventory, too. Um, They're trying to get as much inventory as possible. So if you have a vehicle you're looking to trade in, they are looking to buy. They'll pay you cash for it. Go to rbcarcompany.com or visit one of their locations in South Bend or Warsaw. And as always, let R&B Car Company know that I sent you. Got more coming up, 95.3 MNC.
Boxing legend Manny Pacquiao returns to the ring this Saturday for the first time in two years. And FanDuel Sportsbook is giving new customers exclusive 30-to-1 odds on either fighter to win when he takes on your Dennis, you guys. So, again, if you are downloading FanDuel, you have a shot at winning a lot of money. You can win $150 on a $5 bet here with 30-to-1 odds. FanDuel's always looking to hook you up in ways like this. It's one of the reasons that I play FanDuel regularly. Most of you know I'm a big fight fan, so I'm looking forward to betting on this one. And uh, as, as big of a Manny Pacquiao fan as I am, he's getting up there in age. He's two years away from the ring. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm going to be rooting for him in heart and spirit, but I'm just not convinced that Manny Pacquiao can pull this off. But luckily, I've got 30-1 to 1 odds to help me out, and so do you. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app, sign up with the promo code Casey to get in on the action. Again, that is promo code Casey, C-A-S-E-Y. 21 and over and present in Indiana. Odds boost available for new users only. Must wager on designated boost market. $10 first deposit required. Max bonus $150. Risk-free bet refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in seven days. Max refund, $10 restrictions apply. See full terms for both offers at FanDuel.com sportsbook. And if you have a gambling problem, get help. Call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Looking forward to that fight, though. I always like watching Manny. Even when Manny doesn't win, he just puts on a great fight. All right. Uh, go to rumble.com slash Casey, the host. Please hit that subscribe button. Had a lot of growth over the past uh, couple of weeks. I appreciate that. We'll have some giveaways to thank some of you for doing that here in the near future. Um, I'm going to end with, with Afghanistan. Because, I like, look, I could talk about it the entire day. I know that everybody is talking about it. Um, my my big thing, besides just debunking some of the nonsense that Biden said during his, his live press conference, was that I reminded all of you who are trying to use this as a, oh, we lost, but it's because of, of Biden. We didn't lose. This has nothing to do with our military conflict in Afghanistan, which is still considered one of the greatest military successes in, in modern history. Don't soil that because you want to score political points against Democrats. They did that with Vietnam. You know how many articles I have read today about how the U.S. lost in Vietnam, and this looks just like that. We didn't lose in Vietnam. Saigon didn't fall when we were there. People forget that, but it was so successfully spinned. Thank you, Cronkite. It was so successfully spinned to attack Republicans in the Nixon administration that it is becoming ingrained in American society. Don't let that happen. Our military deserves a heck of a lot better than that from you, especially with most of this talk coming from Republicans today. Because Republicans, for the most part, very supportive of the military. And this is going to feel an awful lot like they're, they're being stabbed in the back by a lot of you. You need to cut it out. It's not worth scoring political points over this. There's plenty of other things to take Biden down. we got more coming up. 95.3 MNC.